and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host for our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's movie is once again part of Horror Month 2020, where I'm trying to do eight horror episodes in the month of October. Eight episodes in one month is very ambitious for me, so this is a uh, lot of work, but it is a labor of love because horror movies are my bread and butter. And of course, obscure horror movies are even more of my bread and butter. And if you like obscure horror movies you have never seen before, oh, are you in for a treat today? Because this could possibly be the most obscure movie I have ever done on Staff Picks. It's a TV movie from 1981 called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. It's a movie I only heard about fairly recently, and it's one that I've been transfixed by ever since then because I'm so excited to to share this movie with people because, again, nobody knows about this movie. Only hardcore horror nerds know about this movie at all. It was never in theaters. It's uh, not a big-name movie. There's no, like, huge big-name stars that you know from other horror movies. It's just... uh, it's one that I just love and began because it's a TV movie. They had to do things a little creatively as you wouldn't be able to do them in the theater. And I just love the way they did it. And so, uh, yeah, here we go. We're going to talk about Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And my guest for this one, as you can imagine, it was a challenge to find a guest who actually knows Dark Knight of the Scarecrow if I don't even know it. But I was able to find two of them. The first guy was the one actually brought it to my attention, but he could not do it. I'll talk about him in a second. But then I found another horror fan on Twitter who has actually posted about this movie. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to get him on the air. And I will say he has never done a podcast before. He was a little nervous. But again, he's a Dark Knight fan. And we're here to to, uh, geek out over a movie that both of us love and share it with you. So uh, let's see. He is a personal trainer. He is a horror fan, movie geek. Very excited to have him on his first podcast ever. Welcome to Staff Picks, David Markowski. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Mario. Looking forward to this. <laughs> so first off, elephant in the room. This is your first podcast. I know you're nervous, correct? Uh, maybe just a little bit, but, you know, it is it is what it is. I'll, uh, this is. This is a cool thing to talk about, so... I don't think it's going to be any problem. <laughs> okay, well, this is how I ease people into staff picks for the first time. I have them talk about something that they know very well. Let's talk about you. Who are you? How did you and I run across each other on Twitter? And what is your history with this movie? So, um, well, you, you pretty much already said what I do, personal trainer. That's kind of a second career for me. Um, I've always been kind of drawn to the creative side of things. You know, I started started doing art and stuff like that at a very young age, and kind of fell into that career-wise there for a while. I was doing some uh, some design work, and then I ended up doing website. And uh, But I've always had kind of this passion for fitness in the background, too. So um, last year, I was having quite a bit of signs that say, hey, this is the time to do it. So I did it. And here we are. So uh, career-wise, that's where I'm at. Um, now, as far as, uh, as this movie and, and horror movies in general, uh, I, I actually have my my mom to thank for that. Because and we might get to this later because uh, talking about other TV horror movies, my uh, my gateway movie was uh, the original 1973 Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, <laughs> which you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> I, that's actually I, I was born in 74, so I never actually saw that one. I'm aware of it. I've never personally seen it. And that bothers me. 
oh, it, it should bother you because, oh boy, that's a good one. That, uh, that's, that has formed my love for horror over the years and gave me plenty of nightmares over the years as well. So definitely one to add to your list. Excellent. That's next year. So that's Horror Month 2021. There you go. <laughs> okay, yeah. So Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Now, I know you probably know more horror movies than me even because I follow you on Twitter. You have a very distinct horror-themed name. What is it if people want to follow you? Uh, yeah, that's that's my Halloween name. We, in in this in the horror community, we all tend to have like our Halloween name that we put on. So mine is Friday of the Thirteenth, <laughs> which <laughs> tongue firmly embedded in cheek, right? <laughs> all right, so Friday of the Thirteenth. So yeah, so this movie in particular, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Do you know much about the? history of it because again i only stumbled on it in the last two or three years and that's only because of word of mouth how did you stumble onto it so um i was let's see this was in 81 so i would have been 10 or 11 when this came out and uh you know back in the day it was it was kind of a big deal when when the tv guy would arrive at the house every week i don't know if the, the, the mm -hmm. younger people out there might not be aware of tv guy but it was this wonderful publication that basically had everything that was on TV all week. So when that would arrive, you would, I, I would grab it out of the mailbox and, you know, nerd that I was, page through the thing cover to cover, seeing what I was going to watch that week. Um, you know, especially horror movies giving attention to that. And on this particular occasion, uh, I came across this ad for a movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. I don't, I don't remember if it was a full page ad or a half page, but it immediately caught my attention. I'm like, hmm. This is awesome, and I really hope that my mom and dad are going to watch this with me because, you know, back then it was like one TV family, so um, it ended up that they did, and it was awesome, and here we are. So they let you watch this at 10 years old? Well, and yeah, and back to what I was saying before, I, I watched Don't Be Afraid of the Dark when I was like three or four years old, so <laughs> mom, what were you thinking? But thank you, mom. These are my my best guests on Staff Picks, the people who had lenient parents and let their children see movies at a totally inappropriate age. Yeah, for sure. But it was, uh, you know, like I said, it, it really formed my my uh, opinion of horror movies and made me a fan. So it was good. It was a good thing. It scarred me for life, but it was a good thing. <laughs> it was a good hurt. Yeah, it was a good hurt, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's get people into this world. We're going to go back in time here to an era when when network TV would have movies on TV. On was it a weekly basis, if I recall? Uh, there were there were several channels that had like movie of the week, um, and I think some of that was uh, you know you had things like Columbo or McLeod, kind of things like that. You remember those shows? But, you know, every once in a while you would get a, a gem like this around Halloween. Um, you had this and then there was another year where you had the, the Salem's Lot miniseries, which is also excellent. Big fan of that. So but, you know, most of the time it, there there weren't a lot of TV horror movies that were primetime. I don't remember anyway, but this was definitely uh, an event when this one was on. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so the big thing, the CBS Saturday Night Movie, that was a weekly thing back then, late 70s, probably early 70s, all the way up to the mid-80s, and this happened to be the CBS Saturday Night Movie the week before Halloween in 1981, is that correct? I believe so, yes. That, that was back when, the, when the, the movies and specials and stuff 
were actually kind of right around the holidays rather than, you know, nowadays where the Christmas stuff is on in, in like November already, which is just dumb. Now, do you know how many times this movie actually aired on TV? Because my research has told me it aired in 81. They rebroadcast it in 85. Were there other times it aired on TV? Not as far as I know. I, I just remember the, the initial time when I saw it, when it was first on TV. Um, and then, you know, it was, it was not till many years later that I saw it again. And I'm not even sure if it was if I rented it or saw it online. I probably rented it. I think they had VHS of this, you know, years after the fact. But no, I don't know how many times it actually aired on TV. Okay, but that's, yeah, that's what I want to get across to my listeners. This movie only aired on TV a couple of times, but it was so memorable and so much better than most made-for-TV stuff that it lodged into people's heads and it stuck with them. And that's how I first heard about it, because I'm always out there looking for underrated movies, movies I've never heard of. And I heard a lot of people from time to time would just pop in with, hey, did you ever see Dark Knight of the Scarecrow on TV? Like, I saw that once in 81, and I still remember it 20 years later. And I'm like, I have I have got to find that movie because that's the word of mouth it produced. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, it, it really it is such a memorable movie. And um, I, I, a large part of that is just because it is so well made. It's uh, it's a very filmic movie. Like it, it, this is one that was um, I, I watched a, uh, a commentary with the the writer and it was actually made for the big screen. But because it was, you know, it was 1981 and they, he really didn't want to focus on like the gore and all that kind of stuff. It, it was option for television and the rest, as we say, is history. Now, I think I read that the guy who wrote this movie was like an underling or a, a devotee of Rod Serling. So it's kind of got some Twilight Zone in there. A little bit does have kind of that that feel to it. Yeah, this is, again, this is not what you would expect from a TV movie. It's so well done. It's very professional looking. It eventually got a VHS release, and now it's on DVD, and so I own it on DVD. And again, this is a movie that I think only aired twice, but that's the kind of legacy it produced. And I again, this... It, it, this is maybe the most obscure movie I've ever produced, I've ever featured on Staff Picks. It's either this or another TV movie. Now, I'm curious, Dave, with your background, do you know the Australian made-for-TV movie Fortress? I am not familiar with that one, but I'm darn sure going to add it to my watch list now that you're mentioning it. Oh, yes, I slipped one past you. I wasn't, ex I wasn't sure I was going to be able to. <laughs> no, for sure. That's cool. I'm always looking for... Just like you, I'm looking for those obscure movies that slipped under the radar, so thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, Fortress, I've already done an episode on Staff Picks. It was this made-for-TV Australian movie about a bunch of little kids in a school who get kidnapped by a bunch of kidnappers in, like, Santa Claus masks. And the kids and their teacher fight back, and it's this brutal movie. I'm like, wow. And it's like it scarred a bunch of kids in Australia in the early 80s. So it's like an equivalent to this. Just kids saw it and like, do you remember that movie from 20 years ago? And so like this is that basically the American equivalent of that. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out now. Excellent. OK, well, let me give a little of my history here that there's one made for TV horror movie that has haunted me ever since I saw it in 1982, which was the year after this. Do you know by chance which movie I might be referring to? Another horror made-for-TV movie? I have an inkling what it might be because if it is the same movie, it's one of my favorites as well. Are we talking about Don't Go to Sleep? 
we are talking about Don't Go to Sleep. <laughs> what a great movie. Yeah, that's the one that got me. I remembered that, and I'm like, that was the creepiest thing I ever saw when I was eight years old. And then I found out there was a year before, there was a movie the year before it, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. So I kind of came to this through Don't Go to Sleep, which I will probably do next year on Horror Month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, after watching that one, you never look at a pizza cutter the same way again. <laughs> I think, honestly, that movie is even more twisted than Dark Knight. Dark Knight is probably a little more approachable. Yeah, it, it is for sure. Um, yeah, Don't Go to Sleep, that... That's an that's an optimal title for it because <laughs> <laughs> the subject matter is yeah, and some of the some of the shots in that movie they they stick with you. <laughs> yeah, again for my younger listeners, you guys would not believe what they would put on TV back in the day, and kids were often not ready for it. And uh, okay, we're gonna go through Dark Knight of the Scarecrow in a second. Although I should point out a couple things about this movie. Again, 1981, it was a big event movie right before Halloween. But for horror history, this indeed was the first time a scarecrow was ever used as something scary or sinister in a horror movie. That is correct. That that came right from from the writer. It was uh, and he didn't even know it at the time. It was it was brought to his attention that this was the first time that there was a scarecrow as the uh, as the monster in a movie. How is that possible? How did nobody ever think of that? I have no idea. I got to be honest there. Because, I mean, you, you look at some of them and they're they're creepy, no doubt. Okay, now I'm pulling something really obscure out of my butt here. Is that when I was a kid, I used to read these uh, the Three Investigators books. I don't know if you're familiar with those. I'm not. But there was one that was called This Case of the Sinister Scarecrow, about a murder that was disguised as a scarecrow. I'm trying to think if that came before this movie or after. And you, you, I don't think you'd know. It's just something I'm using. Perhaps one of my listeners would know that. Look that up for me, please. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'd like to know that too, actually. Hi, this is Mario. I'm just uh, dropping in to tell you I looked this up after we recorded the podcast, and The Three Investigators and The Mystery of the Sinister Scarecrow and came out in 1982, a year after this movie. So this movie was indeed the first case of a sinister scarecrow. But yeah, this is the first movie where a scarecrow becomes the killer and is like tormenting people. And again, it's a... Uh, I guess we'll kind of give the plot right off the top because I want to draw people into this movie. I, I guarantee 99% of my listeners have never seen this movie. How would you summarize this movie, Dave, in like three sentences? So so what we have is uh, it's a small town. It, it can be any town USA, and that's actually uh, was the intention of the creators of this film. But, you know, I was kind of getting a, a Midwest kind of feel from this. Mm -hmm. And you, you have your small farming community, kind of everybody knows everybody else. And uh, there, are, there are three main characters to this, and two of which we meet kind of right off the bat. It's uh, a little girl named uh, Mary Lee, and her friend is named Bubba. And Bubba is 36 years old, but he is... Uh, He's mentally challenged, so he, he basically is a child himself, so they're like best friends. And uh, there, are, there are guys in the town who are like the, the local yahoos, and the they posse. have it out. Yeah, the posse, and they, they've had it out for Bubba for, for years now and just are looking for any excuse to harass him. So um, this, is, this is kind of the premise of this movie, and 
I'm not sure how, how far you want me to go into this right now. No, I'll definitely take it just because I want to put a picture in your head before we walk through the plot step by step. It's really a local posse is going to gun down this mentally challenged guy. And again, think of uh, Lenny from Of Mice and Men. That's basically who this Bubba guy is. He plays with a little girl. They're best friends. This posse thinks he's like a pervert and he's a pedo and he's going to you know, diddle the little girl. So they gun him down in cold blood. And then the spirit of Bubba comes back and kills them in the vise of a scarecrow. It's a very simple movie, but oh boy, is it effective. Oh, yeah. There, there is atmosphere galore in this movie. And again, you can see why little kids who saw this at seven, eight years old were scarred by it. There's a couple scenes, some death scenes in this movie that are horrific. But the scene in particular, and we'll get to it when we get there, is where Bubba, the mentally challenged guy, is gunned down in cold blood. It's one of the most horrific things you will ever see in a TV movie. It really is. It, it, it's heartbreaking. And that even even as a kid, I was like, wow, did they really just do that to him? Because you, you immediately, whenever that, when as soon as that character is brought in, you immediately empathize with him. That's the thing. You empathize with this character so strongly, this big Lenny, you know, big hulking giant, and he's murdered. Okay, well, I got to give you one more story. So like I said in my intro, I had another guy who originally brought this movie to my attention. You will find this interesting. He was a screener for like AMC or Turner Classic Movies. He's the guy that picks the movies they play on those channels. I'm sure you're familiar with those channels, right? Oh, sure. He emailed me once and said, you know, there's this TV movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow that back in the day I used to try to slip into there on this movie channel that I ran. And I'd always get in trouble because no one had ever heard of it, but it was my favorite. So I'd always try to slip it onto the air. And I'm like, you got to come on my show. And he's like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to reveal myself. I signed like a non-compete. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but like, he's the one that tipped me off to this movie because he would slip it onto these late night movie channels and see if he could get away with it. <laughs> That's funny. Good for him. Good for him for trying anyway. That's right. He's trying to stick it to the man. Trying to get an awesome movie like this out into the masses where it needs to be. Exactly. And that is what I do. That is what Staff Picks is. As long as I can bring some joy into the world with obscure horror movies that scarred people, I would like it to scar other people as well. Exactly. There's more scarring in the world. We need it. Exactly. It's a good hurt for everybody. Yeah, there you go. All right. So, Dave, are you ready to walk through the plot here of Dark Knight of the Scarecrow? Simple plot as it is. I am ready. <laughs> okay. I am hoping we can go an hour on this podcast because this is such a basic movie, but we will try to uh, elaborate as much as we can. So, as Dave said, it's set in small town, middle of nowhere, farmland, and it opens with our two main characters, Bubba and Mary Lee, sitting in a meadow. Kind of explain this scene to people, the opening of this movie. So, and I wanted to mention, even before that, when the first thing we see is, is a windmill, but right away, you have this creepy score come in, and you know exactly what you're in for just by the way this music sounds. You know what kind of movie this is going to be. And uh, it, it was done by a, a man named Glenn Paxton, who actually did a lot of, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, like after-school specials and stuff like that, the music for them. <laughs> so if you remember those back in the day, and this is, <laughs> yeah, he came, he came recommended to to the writer of this as, as just being an awesome composer. And if you listen to this soundtrack, you can see why, because it is just, it's creepy from start to finish. 
even when we're we're introduced to like you were you were going before that opening scene where it's uh Mary Lee and Bubba playing together in the field, they kind of have their own theme there, which is more lighthearted but still creepy. So I just wanted to mention that it's it's almost another character in the film. Well, okay. I mean, one thing you mentioned there, you said when you listen to the, when you watch this movie, you hear the soundtrack. I guess we'll bring this up so I don't forget at the end. Is there a way for people to watch this movie? Is it on YouTube or anywhere online? Are you aware of that? Um, I believe it is on Tubi right now. Okay. And I think it might also be on Amazon. I, I don't know if it's rentable or if it's, it's streamable, but I know it's definitely on Tubi right now. Yeah, see, I personally own it on DVD, so I could watch it anytime. I don't expect my listeners to do that. But yeah, this definitely seek this movie out. This is one I have a 100% success rate with recommending to people over the years. I've never met somebody who doesn't like it. Yeah, and it is perfect for this time of year. You know, the closer you watch it to Halloween, the better, because it has just got that whole atmosphere going on. And I think it's actually, it's set right around Halloween. So perfect. It's a win-win. <laughs> It's a windmill windmill. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. Opening scene. Explain. Put a picture in people's heads. Bubba and Mary Lee. So uh, it, it opens in this, it's kind of this big meadow, uh, you know, it's this big field full of flowers. And like I said, the music's kind of lighthearted and kind of pan in on these, these two figures. One's a little girl and the other one is Bubba, who is, um, he's basically dressed like a kid. He's got his, his bib overalls on and... Uh, they're kind of picking flowers, and I think she's making making either a necklace or a crown or something like that. And and poor old Big Lug Bubba, he's trying to help her out, and, and you know he's just a a big lummox, kind of like kind of like I am in real life. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's trying to hand her the flowers, and he crushes them. So he's like, "Oh, Bubba, you crushed the flower. You can't hold it that hard. You know that kind of thing." But you can see the relationship that they have. They're they're just friends, and they love spending time together. And they have a song, a special song that they sing that will come back later in the movie, The Flower Song. The Flower Song, yes. <laughs> Again, I cannot believe how well-written this screenplay is. Everything that has a setup earlier in the movie will have a payoff later. This flower song becomes very important. But yeah, for now, they're just sitting there playing. She's making a lay and putting it around his neck. She kisses him on the cheek. They, like, hold hands. But she just thinks of him like a big kid because that's what he is. He's just... Uh, a big Lenny. That's all I'm saying of mice and men. That's all he is. And he loves playing with little kids. Exactly. And, uh, that was just, just an aside on that. Um, that was actually Larry Drake who, who plays Bubba. That was his inspiration for that character. Like he, he always had wanted to play Lenny mm -hmm. and he used that as like his motivation for this to kind of get Bubba where he wanted to be. Mm -hmm. That's good. I didn't know that. Yeah. Just a little random fact there. Okay, let, let's talk about Larry Drake for a second, because he's actually quite interesting. I don't know if people would know this, younger people, but in the 80s, there was a TV show called L.A. Law, the late 80s, and they had a law firm, and they had a mentally challenged guy who worked in the office, and he was like, the, so, some would argue, the star of that show, and he was played by Larry Drake, the same actor here, and I think he won Emmys for that role. It's a big, famous role. This guy, Larry Drake, got a bunch of horror movies off that. He got Dr. Giggles. He got a couple others. But it all started with this movie where he played Bubba as a mentally challenged man, which I believe was the first acting role he had ever had, correct, in a movie? I'm not 100% on that, but I think it's it's at least one of his earliest roles, if not the first. 
Okay, I can actually I actually watched the documentary on the DVD, and it says he showed up for the audition. He didn't have an agent. He got the role because he was so convincing as a mentally challenged guy, and because he got this role, that's how he got an agent, and that started his whole career. But he didn't even have an agent when he walked in. Oh wow! <laughs> but yeah, you you do not doubt for a second that Larry Drake is Bubba. He to- he pulls it off so convincingly. Oh yeah, for sure. He is, he's, he's such a talented actor. Like he really, he, he lives the part when he's, when he's doing this, he is, he is Bubba. And he actually always, he always will be Bubba to me. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that is why his death scene will be so convincing later because it's horrible. (laughs) It really is. It's, uh, I didn't want to think about it. All right. Well, we'll get to it in a second. Don't worry. We'll have to think about it then. So Bubba and Mary Lee are in the field playing flowers and playing games. And, and there's a man way off in the distance watching them. And this is the third character in the movie, Otis P. Hazelrig, which is a wonderful character name. And he's watching them and he's convinced as a, one of the locals in town that this Bubba is up to no good. He's a pedophile. He's going to do something to that little girl and we got to stop him. And which is really quite ironic considering Mr. Hazelrig's nature himself, which we, we might get to later on in the movie as well. Um, but yeah, this, that character, you just like, even as a kid, I just wanted to punch him because he's just such a wretch. And, and he is, he's, he's paid, played with, uh, with smarmy perfection by Charles Durning. <laughs> uh, maybe a lot of, uh, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with his work or not, but I mean, he's, it's the total antithesis of what he's like in real life. And I think he just, he probably had a ball playing this character because it, it's just so not Charles Durning. Yeah. He is so nasty. This is our villain in the movie, the town postman, the mailman played by Charles Durning. And it's funny because I just did an episode of staff picks on the Muppet movie where Charles Durning is Doc Hopper, the villain. <laughs> Where I pointed out to my co-host, hey, there's this uh, other movie where, where Doc Hopper guns down a mentally handicapped guy. And she's like, oh, my God. So that's the only time the Muppet movie and Dark Knight of the Scarecrow have come up in the same sentence. That is that was a nice one there. That was a good comparison. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's talk about Otis. This is Otis, the mailman and his posse. He's got a bunch of buddies in town and they're like the local vigilantes and they're convinced we have to do something to stop Bubba because he's going to molest that little girl. Yeah, they, they really all are. But, but Otis is clearly like the ringleader of this, this little posse or gang or whatever you want to call them. Like they, they don't do anything unless he says so. And, you know, he's kind of the one that instigates this whole thing against Bubba. And I think they're just kind of going along with it because they're, you know, they're, uh, they're looking up to their leader so to speak. And again, in their, in their point of view, they feel they're doing the correct thing. They are policing the town. Right. Right. But yeah, Otis, the main guy, the mailman, he is a piece of work. He's got a speech here at the start. He's like, you know, that, that big dumb guy, he's going to do something to that little girl and we got to stop him. And his little buddies are like, well, we could go slap him around. We could slap Bubba and punch him and beat him up. And Otis is like, no way. He's so stupid. He'd just forget. We got to do something permanent. And here's the quote. He's a blight, like stinkweed and cutworm that you spray to get rid of. But always keep coming back. Something has to be done to him, but it's got to be permanent. Oh, my. That's uh, that's 100% Otis there. 
He's a real piece of work. It's a preemptive strike. It's like nuclear war. You got to do it preemptively. Right, right. But then I remember that scene too. And then uh, I believe it was, uh, who was he talking with there? Uh, Harless? And he's like, uh, yeah, I have no problem slapping him around, but uh, that's that's as far as I go or something like that. I was trying to get the accent there. <laughs> yeah, Otis, again, the, the names in this movie, his the posse is Otis, Harless, Skeeter, and I believe, who's the fourth guy, Philby? Philby, yeah. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to worry too much about them. They will become cannon fodder later for the revenge. But yeah, this is the posse. And in their mind, they're doing something good. They're going to protect this little girl, but it will all go horribly wrong very quickly here. Oh, yes, it will. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about it going horribly wrong. When Mary Lee and and Bubba are walking home from the little flower date, and they pass a fence and a yard with something that Mary Lee wants to go see. So this is uh, uh, apparently the, uh, the yard of one of the local townspeople named Renfro. And they just got a new fountain in their yard, which Mary Lee is just enthralled with and wants to go in and see it. Because, of course, there's a loose board in the in the fence that's just big enough for her to get through. And, uh, you know, Bubba is 100 percent against this. He doesn't want to go in there. He doesn't want her to go in either. But, you know, little kids being little kids, she's got to go in there and see it for herself. So, uh, you know, Mary Lee squeezes through the fence and Bubba's kind of watching her and, and enjoying seeing her her glory in there you know doing posing like the little figurines that are around and being with the fountain and uh little does does she know but the renfros have a dog which is uh i'm not sure what kind of maybe a doberman looks like a doberman yeah yeah the the dog does not like mary lee being in the yard and goes after her so bubba to the rescue yeah, this is the first pretty vicious scene in the movie where little Mary Lee is in the yard, you know, playing with the lawn gnomes, mimicking them, and this guard dog comes out of nowhere. And Bubba, for all his faults, Bubba has been trained very well. He doesn't want to go into someone's yard. He doesn't want to break in. He's been trained very well by his mama not to get in trouble, but he's been waiting outside. He sees Mary Lee being attacked by this guard dog, and it's you don't actually see it, but it's you hear the sounds. It's pretty violent. And Bubba breaks into the fence to save her, and this will lead to a huge misunderstanding, which will lead in, lead to Bubba's death. Exactly. Yeah, Bubba just, uh, he, he takes that whole fence with him. I mean, good for him. He's, he wants to save her, so uh, he, he does, he rescues her from the dog, but, and then we see Bubba is carrying her to, to her house, and, you know, we see the, the point of view from her mother, and Bubba's there, like, covered in filth, and he has Mary Lee in his arms, and she's just hanging there limp. Like, you know, you just assume the worst. You think this this dog has just killed this little girl. And, of course, right away, just because of Bubba's reputation, you know, the mom screams, and, of course, it must be Bubba's fault. Bubba must have done this. Oh, yeah. She, you know, she doesn't say it out loud, but we get this impression just by the way she reacts. Yeah, you have to think of the mom of the town. If you're little nine-year-old girl is playing with this big 39-year-old hulking brute. You have, you've wondered about it for years. Is something bad going to happen to her? And this is probably her worst fear. Bubba's holding her, looks like dead daughter in his arms. And Bubba is terrified. That's again, this is the genius of Larry Drake as an actor. He is so convincing here, the terror in his eyes when he brings the dead, the body of little Mary Lee to her mom. And she's screaming and Bubba, 
over and over is just saying, Bubba didn't do it. Bubba didn't do it. Bubba didn't do it because he knows he might get blamed for this. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Yep, exactly. Because it, it doesn't take long and, and word gets to uh, our little posse here. And boy, they just uh, they they bite on that right away. Yeah, and so here comes the posse into action. We're about to have one of the most horrific things you're ever going to see in a, you know, let alone TV movie, but movie period. This is horrible. This posse gathers together. We got this guy Skeeter from the gas station, this guy Philby from the grain silo, and they grab some hound dogs and pickup trucks and shotguns, and they are basically going to go hunt Bubba down and slaughter him in cold blood. Yep, modern day lynching. They're they're going after Bubba, and they're they're not going to accept anything less than their the permanent solution that Hazel Rig has wanted all along. So Bubba basically starts running. He runs through the woods. He's still wearing the lay, the flower lay the little girl made to him, and he runs to his mama's house. And he's like, "Mama, help, help! I didn't do it, Mama! Help! They're going to hurt me." He knows that these townspeople don't like him, and so we're gonna, it's going to culminate in a big showdown at the mama's house where. Bubba hides, and she plays the game with him, right? This is where the hiding game comes up? Yep, the hiding game. And, you know, she, she says about it right away to him, and and you can see him. And another another classic Larry Drake moment here. You can see him. Like, you can see the wheels turning in his head trying to remember this game, and then the look of awareness comes on his face, and and then he remembers what the hiding game is. Now, now an interesting thing about the mama. Now, again, there's only three characters, the three main characters, really. But the fourth character, you could argue, is Bubba's mom. Now, I didn't know until this morning when I was researching it, the actress who plays that role is actually someone fairly famous. Yeah, it's uh, the lovely Jocelyn Brando, who is Marlon Brando's older sister. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, we have a Brando in this movie. Cool. Right. And, and she was actually in... Um, she was in a series. I don't know if you remember this. Maybe some of your uh, another obscure thing for you. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, a short run series in the I think it was like the early to mid eighties. It was actually on primetime ABC called The Dark Room. Hmm. Are you familiar with that? I am not. I've never heard of that. It was an anthology series with, of all people, James Coburn as the host. And it, they were all horror episodes. And she, the, one of the most memorable episodes had Jocelyn Brando in, and she played a witch. And this guy breaks into her house, and well, you can imagine what happens. Is this guy's like coming in, wants to rob her, and it was just, it was a great episode, and she was wonderful in that, just like she's wonderful in this. So that's definitely one for you to look up. Wow, I'm excited about that. I've never heard of that. Okay, I will look into that for sure. Yeah, it wasn't. I, I think they maybe made like ten episodes. I guess, uh, you know, the world wasn't ready for it yet, but they were awesome. Every one of them was memorable. You know, sometimes the brightest star flames out the fastest. I guess. I don't know. But anyway, it, it just speaks to her her acting ability because she's she's very believable as Mrs. Redder, and she was very believable as this character in the other show that I mentioned as well. <laughs> Speaking of that, there's one other semi-famous actress in this movie that I did not know until I researched it this morning. Do you know who I'm talking about? The owner of the uh, boarding house where Otis lives? Um... I, I remember her name was Mrs. Bunch, but I don't remember who played her. This is great. As a horror movie fan, you'll love this. That's Alice Nunn, who we know as Large Marge from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, my goodness. How about <laughs> that? Small world, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to the plot. So 
Mama pulls Bubba aside. Again, she's this old, you know, brick of a woman, and she's in probably her 80s or so, and she's been, you know, taking care of Bubba her whole life. And she's like, let's play the hiding game. Remember what we did last time. And again, we kind of get the implication these guys have come after Bubba before, that they have it in for him. And she's like, we'll go hide you somewhere. And Bubba's like, I can, I can play good, Mama. I can play that game. So she goes off to hide him, and now we get the confrontation at her house where the posse shows up with their guns and their dogs and they demand Bubba's head and the mom basically holds them off as long as she can. Yeah, she can. She, you know, she says, what are you men doing here? Get off my property. And Bubba's not even here. You know, everything that, that just like you said, she was stalling them as long as she could. But uh, uh, the difference this time, because they, they have been here before, the difference this time they had the dogs with them. So um, it was only a matter of time until they find poor old Bubba. Yeah, the hiding game doesn't work when there's dogs involved. Exactly. <laughs> I think they even say at one point uh, that when, when they're going to the field where they, they eventually will find Bubba, um, that they didn't have the dogs the last time, and the field was where they lost him the last time because he played the hiding game so well. <laughs> the world champion at the hiding game, Bubba. Finally, his first defeat. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. So, so yeah, the mom says, get off my property. Bubba would never hurt anybody. He would never hurt a child. He loves Mary Lee. And, and the posse's like, no, ma'am, this is official. He killed a girl. We're here on official police business. He must die. And so it's a big tense scene. And she goes in to call the cops. But as, uh, as she's doing that, the dogs track out into this field. There's a big cornfield, an empty cornfield with a scarecrow. And this is where Bubba is hiding. His mom has hidden him in a scarecrow outfit. You can't see him. He's kind of dangling on like a cross. And he's hanging there. And he's got a burlap sack over his head. And the dogs go up to it. And this is where uh, Otis looks in the bag and sees two terrified eyes. And you can see Bubba trembling. And he knows they've caught him. Yep. And, and, and again, just all you see is the eyes. And the look of terror in his eyes is just, oh, man, it's, it's getting me right now just remembering what, what he looks like because you just, you feel, you know what's going to happen and you just feel so awful for Bubba. And that, you know, that's a large part of this movie too. It's just that the acting is just so wonderful on all, all across the board. Yeah. And again, he's terrified. I cannot overstate that enough. This is why you have to see this movie for this moment. This is horror movie canon. One of the greatest filmed horror movie scenes I have ever seen. And it's horrible. It's just so terrible. It will sit with you forever. Bubba's eyes in the, that mask, and he's strung up. He's nailed basically up to a post. He can't move. He's a sitting duck. And these four guys just basically take a step back, load up their shotguns, and blam. They just let him have it in like three rounds each. I think he takes 21 shots or something. It was something ridiculous like that. Yeah, like 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 he was he was dead dead. They made sure of it. Yeah. And he's screaming, Bubba didn't do it. Bubba didn't do it. So it's like, again, just this scene alone, if the movie was just this long, I would say you've got to see just for how horrific this is, even though most of the plot is still later to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But and, and this wasn't even, you know, I think they, they kind of realized after the fact, oh, boy, what did we just do? So, you know, of course, uh, I think it's Hazel Rig that actually finds the, uh, the pitchfork lying there and kind of I don't know if he puts it in Bubba's hand or not, but he put, he puts it with him mm -hmm. to make it look like they were defending themselves, which is which is utter crap. Yeah, this is the way Hazel Rig works. That's that's his mind working. 
Okay, yeah, to summarize for people, they, right after they blow Bubba away, and it's not graphic, you see it from behind, so it's not like especially bloody, you just see it from Bubba's point of view, which is terrible. But then all of a sudden there's a note, there's a little radio announcement over there, walkie-talkie. Oh, turns out the girl's okay, she's not dead. So the cops are calling in, call off the search for Bubba, the girl's going to be fine, and the, 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 the Bubba actually saved her from a dog, so Bubba's a hero. So Otis is like, oops, we just blew away this hero. And that's his, like, like Dave said, that's uh, Otis's thought process is we'll put a pitchfork in Bubba's hand. So it looks like he tried to attack us and it was self-defense. What a creep. That's all I have to say about that. But, but, and the look on his, his comrades faces, as we kind of pan around to them after the fact too, they, they know, Oh boy, what did we just do? Yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is brutal. Because again, they were just, they were just following Hazelrig. He was the first one to fire, and everybody else fired because of him. Mm-hmm. Although, as I said before in the screenplay, almost everything that's set up at the beginning has a payoff later. I forgot that that pitchfork has a wonderful payoff later in the movie. Oh, it sure does. <laughs> I love this movie. <laughs> I do, too. It's quite the payoff. Okay, so uh, fast forward through a little bit here. There's a big trial. The four men are put on trial for murder. And Hazelrig insists, you know, he had a pitchfork. He tried to attack us. We we had to act in self-defense. And and the judge basically, because, you know, Hazelrig's the mailman, and these four men are a respected member of the community, they're beloved crackers, that we will let them off, that they will get a slap on the wrist, but we will say they acted in, in self-defense. So they get off scot-free, no penalty at all. Of course. But, uh, you know, the, the district attorney knows that something's up here because he knows these guys. He knows they've had it out for Bubba all this time. So, you know, he's and uh, he, he kind of confronts them after after the, the trial's over and just kind of says, if I ever find even one shred of evidence, he's going to nail him to the wall or some some to that effect, to paraphrase. And that becomes very important to the plot. As things progress, they're going to think the district attorney is messing with them when it's really something far more sinister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So basically, as you said, uh, Marlon Brando's sister played a witch in the TV show, the anthology. Here she is also almost a witch where at the end of the trial, she points at the four men and says, you think you got away with it, but there's other justice in this world besides the law. What a great line. <laughs> And the rest of the movie is basically these four vigilantes being hunted down by an unknown killer, kind of Friday the 13th-ish. Exactly. Except we, we never even see the killer. It's just these, these guys meet their unfortunate demise in some pretty creative ways, got to say. <laughs> yeah, especially for a TV movie. We will get to one that's very Fargo, where I've always enjoyed. <laughs> and, and the way it's handled, I know just what, which one you're talking about, too. And the way it was handled is just perfect. <laughs> okay, so the four vigilantes go out to celebrate that they got off scot-free. They didn't go to jail for murder. And this is where they go out for fried chicken, which is a scene that I love. Because for some reason, Harless says fried chicken three different times and giggles like it's the funniest thing ever. Well, you, you remember what? This was this was still back at the courthouse. Um, uh, Hazel Riggs, like, glancing at his watch while the district attorney's talking to him. And uh, the district attorney's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Hazelrig, am I keeping you? And he says something to the effect of, oh, well, Mrs. Bunch is making fried chicken tonight. So that's where that came from. <laughs> fried chicken, one of the all-time great joke punchlines. Fried chicken, yep. 
It's hilarious, right? <laughs> it's kind of observational humor, like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the four men go out and celebrate and eat their fried chicken. And off in the background, you feel that this wind is blowing and, like, the these doors are starting to bang against do- uh, barns across the, this, the town. And you just get this image. Something bad is going to happen to these men. Something ominous is going to happen now because justice was not served. That the spirit of Bubba will somehow be avenged. Exactly. And, of course, you got the soundtrack, too. You can't forget that because, you know, that creepy soundtrack going, too. Okay, so now the movie's going to start to get fairly creepy where Mary Lee, the little girl who survived the dog attack, is wondering what happened to Bubba. What happened to my friend Bubba, who I always play the flower game with and sing flower songs? And the parents will not tell her that Bubba's dead because they're trying to protect her. So, So what does she do? She ends up, she goes to... To one of the places that she knows that she frequents, she goes to Bubba's house and uh, sneaks out. Yeah. Sneaks out in the middle of the night to go to his house. Exactly. So she finds out what happens to Bubba. Bubba's mom tells her, right? She's like, oh, no one told you, child, did you? And the girl's like, what happened? Where's Bubba? And so the mom has to say it, right? Bubba's dead. He's never coming back. But Mary Lee doesn't believe that. No, not at all. She is, she is confident that, that Bubba is, is not dead or uh, is, is still still with them in some way, shape, or form. I think she just has kind of an intuition. I don't know at, at this point if, uh, if she's seen him yet or not, but she's definitely not, not having that. Yeah, the little girl is concerned at first. Again, she's only 9 or 10. She's like, but... Bubba won't be able to sing the flower song all by himself. I have to help him. And I'm teaching him his ABCs. Like he can't be gone. And the mom's like, Oh child, he's, he's somewhere where no one can hurt him anymore. And she's like, Oh, that the little girl's like, no, that's silly. He's just playing the hiding game. I'll show you. He's out. He's out playing the game. It's, 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 he's just being silly. And so that's kind of the premise of this movie. Is this girl nuts or does she know something that nobody else knows? I'm going to have to go with the latter. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> okay, so here we go. It's really the rest of the movie is just murders. It's going to turn into Friday the 13th, where the next day, Harless, he's like the number two in command under Otis the mailman. He's out in his, in his uh, farm, and his wife sees something weird out on the horizon. What does she see? So so she comes out, and she's she's kind of looking out there, and... And she says, Harless, did, did you plant this year? And, and you know, he's, he's like, no, what are you talking about? So, well, how comes there's a scarecrow out there? And, of course, they, you know, that, that makes him, him pause and, and look up and kind of see that it's out there. And uh, you can just imagine what he's, what's going through his mind. <laughs> yeah, the scarecrow will be the harbinger. Every time one of these conspirators is going to die, they will have the scarecrow planted on their yard or in their field the day before they die. It's like the warning. And it's the exact same one that Bubba was in. So he looks out. He sees the death scarecrow hanging on a cross. I love the biblical imagery there, by the way. And he's like, oh, my God, what does this mean? Somebody knows that we killed Bubba. Yep, exactly. So now then, of course, they try to put their heads together and figure out, well, well who is it? Who saw this? Who knows? And who do they think is planting evidence to frame them? Well, you know, at first they think it's this district attorney, Sam, because uh, they, they know that he's he's after them. He's watching them and, and wants to catch them in the act. 
or you know find any kind of evidence that that they did what they did. So he's he's the logical choice for him. I love the progression in this movie of the people that they think are trying to frame them. First, they think it's the DA, and then who after that? Who do they move to? Then they think it's uh, Bubba's mom, and then finally, uh, <laughs> and I have to laugh even think about it. Finally, as we get toward the end of the movie, Hazel Rigg just thinks it's a little girl that's done all this to everybody, that's killed everyone, and is just causing havoc all over the town. Yes. yes, as conspirators are being killed and thrown into farm machinery, that they think a little nine-year-old girl is the one doing it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. uh, I think uh, I think maybe uh, Otis has had one too many swigs out of that bottle he keeps in his room. <laughs> okay, so here we go to the first murder. So Harless, the number two in command, played by an actor I've always loved named Lane Smith. Do you know, do you know Lane Smith from other stuff? I don't. This is the only thing that I remember him in, but I'm uh, refresh my memory. What other things has he been in? Oh, gosh. He was in a lot of courtroom movies. I think he's in My Cousin Vinny. He's in uh, The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training. He plays a cop. He's just one of those that guys that showed up everywhere in the 70s and 80s. But yeah, this is a movie I remember him from because he is the first one to be killed by the Scarecrow. Yeah. And, and what a memorable death, too. All right, I will give you the honor, since this is such a memorable scene. Let's describe this scene for people, Harless's death. Okay, so um, it's nighttime. Harless is, uh, is out. Uh, I guess he's finishing up his day's chores. He's kind of closing things up and you know, puttering around, fixing things. And uh, here's something in his barn. So, of course, he, he breaks the, uh, one of the cardinal rules of horror movies. He goes to investigate a strange noise which we know we never do in a horror movie because it never ends well. So he goes into his barn and uh, hears something kind of up in the loft. Sounds like somebody maybe walking around or shuffling around up there. And, you know, you see the little bits of hay falling down too. So, you know, Harless is, he's, he's getting a little suspicious here, wondering what's going on. So goes in to check it out further, climbs up the ladder and uh, there's a great shot of this when he just kind of pokes his head up, has a flashlight with him, and the lighting is just great in this. Like, it's so so eerie. Um, he gets up there, and there's there's kind of this, I, I want to say a crate or a box or something there, and you just, you think somebody's going to come jumping out of this crate. So he goes up there, and he's looking around and grabs a, what's, what's that little thing, a, a sickle, a scythe? Yeah, a little scythe. Yeah, so, you know, has to arm himself to go see what this is. And he's kind of moving slowly towards this box. And, and all of a sudden, this, uh, this equipment that's underneath him turns on. Turns out it's his, his, uh, his brush grinder. I guess that's what it's called. <laughs> I would say wood chipper, if you know Fargo. Yeah, wood chipper for sure. But uh, yeah, and this, and this thing just comes on and you know he's, he's calling out to his wife. Is that you? Is that you turn it on? And nobody answers. But um, this, when this thing comes on, it, it startles him, and of course, he falls off the ledge and grasps futilely at the the overhead light that's hanging there. And you know, I guess you can all ha guess what happens next. Um, <laughs> right down into the machine, of course. But we don't really get so much of a payoff. You know, you expect to see this big big spray of blood coming out, but we don't. All we see is we, you know, you hear the noise of the grinder going. And you kind of see the light bouncing back and forth. 
And then what do we cut to next? You got this big red splat. <laughs> and we kind of zooms out and it's it's strawberry preserves, Mrs. Bunch's strawberry preserves going on Hazel Riggs plate. And it was just so perfect. It was because, you know, you know, when you uh, just like the, the writer said, when you, you build up that much tension in a scene, you got to let the audience have some relief. And what better way? <laughs> Comedy every time. It was just wonderful. Yeah, that's one of the greatest moments in this movie that Harless falls into a wood chipper, which trivia, I'm guessing is probably the first instance of a person falling into a wood chipper in a TV movie. I'm going to say, yeah, <laughs> I think so. And they immediately cut to red preserves dropping onto a plate with a plop, which is so wonderful. It really is. It, it's still, I, I just, I watched it yesterday in, in preparation for this again. And just, I never expected, I never remember that's coming. And I laugh every time, which is, you know, that's testament to the filmmaking again. Well, you know, that that does remind me in uh, Don't Go to Sleep. Have you watched Don't Go to Sleep, the other TV movie recently? Um, it's, it's been a few months, but yeah, I have, I've watched it in recent history. There's a very similar cut in that movie too, which I wonder is an homage to this movie. It very well might be. Yeah. I'll spoil it a little for people. A little kid is playing on the roof, trying to get his Frisbee or something that went up there. He's like eight and he falls off the roof and basically splits his head open. And we never see the impact. What you see is we cut to a shot of the mom, like opening a watermelon and cutting it open the next day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's so brutal but it's the exact same type of cut stuff like that it's just it, it can make or break a movie and it makes both of them in this case it's just so well done yeah so harless the first of the conspirators has been murdered by again there's no proof he was murdered he just fell into his wood chipper that turned on by itself and then turned off by itself and he was all ground up but the next morning the other three conspirators are kind of freaking out they're like did somebody kill harless what happened? And they're trying to figure out what happened. And first they think maybe it just went on by, it was on by itself. He left it running, but they go and they check the gas in the wood chipper and it's still full of gas. So the wood chipper had to be turned off by somebody after he died. So they think that somebody killed Harless and they immediately suspect the DA and then also Bubba's mom. And this is where Otis goes to Bubba's mom to have it out with her, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. I know he, he makes his way out there and, uh, I guess under the guise that he had a package or something for it and she had to sign for it and whatever else. So, uh, you know, he, he says something to the effect of, well, it's, it's an eye for an eye or something like that. Let's leave it there. And, you know, she's, she's pretty much still just, just being Bubba's mom is like, you get your, get, get your foot out of my door, get off my property, leave us alone or, you know, leave me alone. Okay. Yeah. And she, Otis accuses her of killing Harless and she's like, I didn't do it, but there's other justice in this world. What you sow, so shall you reap. Such a great line. There are so many great lines in this. And there's another line. I love another line here that she delivers where uh, he says, it's even now. We killed one of yours. You killed one of ours. And she's like, there ain't 10 of you, 10 of you men that are worth one of my bubba. It's nowhere near even. She's like, there's going to be more murder. She just kind of knows. She said, it ain't even not so long as you're walking. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> Although this is where we get the plot reveal where she says, I know why you killed Bubba. You wanted that little girl for yourself. I've seen the way you look at her. You're the pedophile. And he like immediately clams up and runs away because he's like nervous. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You you can definitely see like the the look on his face immediately changes because you know it's a it's small town people talk that kind of thing. It's amazing how many suitors Mary Lee has in this town. She's the belle of the ball. <laughs> we'll skip past that anyway. So this is where the second conspirator, Mister Philby, now gets a scarecrow on his property as a warning, and it's just it's just like before. We're going to follow the same pattern. Yeah, for sure. And and this is another this this scene is so great, too, because, um, you know, it, it's like it's moonlight. I don't know if it was actually shot outside at night, but, you know, it, you got the moonlight shining on all the equipment and stuff. And, you know, Philby comes walking out. He's munching on a sandwich and, you know, just kind of carefree and whatever, because, you know, these, these these guys just killed someone. They don't care. They're just going on with their lives, whatever. But, you know, he's walking out and he, he kind of sees he sees a scarecrow out there and freaks out as brightly he should so and then you know he goes and goes and finds his his cohorts there and tells them about what he saw yeah he's like i'm gonna die tonight this is what happened to harless he saw a scarecrow then he was killed that night that's gonna happen to me and he basically tells otis he's like you got us into this you fix this because i'm gonna go confess if we i think if we confess to the cops all this will stop it'll spare our lives but otis doesn't want to confess because he still thinks he got away with murder so otis is going to let's see first he goes to talk to mary lee right at the dance so so he shows up at this i guess they're having like a, a halloween dance or something and it's kind of the the whole town is there they're all dressed up and whatever and and uh Mary Lee's there and she's like, I, I don't know if, I don't think it's ever said what she's dressed up like her mom, but she's, she's dressed up like much older than she is. And of course, which I'm, I'm sure Hazel Ray just loves that. But um, he's in there and he's, you know, he goes for the, the punch bowl. And of course the, the lady says, Oh, this one's spiked and this one's not. And, and he's like, Oh, I'm a teetotaler, which we, we know damn well isn't true. <laughs> and you know, uh, he grabs the other stuff then and you know, gets a little smirk on his face. But, you know, he's, he sees Mary Lee and he, he kind of confronts her. He grabs Mary Lee and says, is Mrs. Ritter, is Bubba's mom doing this? Is she trying to plant scarecrow stuff on our land? And Mary Lee won't talk to him. And he's like, what happened? You can tell me. You can trust me. I'm the mailman. Oh, yeah, I'm the mailman. And he says, is it a secret? You, you can tell me a secret. You can trust me. I'm a mailman. So then so she comes over and she knows, I know what you did to Bubba. And then quickly backs away from him because she knows he's he's crazy. She didn't want anything to do with him. Well, yeah, this this is where we get the creepy Mary Lee subplot where she whispers over to Otis. She's like, I talked to Bubba. I know what you did to him. He told me everything. And the mailman's like, Bubba didn't tell you that. Bubba's dead. And she's like, I know. And she runs off. Yep. So perfect. Hazel Rigg chases after her and then he gets around the corner. He's got a flashlight in his face. And I guess it's the, uh, so I don't know if it's never clear if it's a security guard or like it's local law enforcement. They're like, the party's up front, Hazel Rigg. And you're like, yes, get him. So Otis now tries to fix things one more time. Now he goes to Bubba's mom at night. And this is another pretty horrific scene. Oh, it really is. Yeah, this is. Oh, so yeah. He goes there and uh, basically breaks into her house, sneaks up behind her, you know, grabs her around, uh, you know, covers her so she can't scream and is, and is just kind of saying, you know, enough is enough. And 
you know, he takes takes his hand off for a second. She screams. So he quick covers her up again. And this time, it's, you know, you're, you're watching her face and you can see she's, she's had it. She's done. So now Hazel Riggs got another body on his hands. Yeah. Heart attack. Heart attack. Yeah. Heart attack. So, but, you know, caused by him being Otis as usual. So, of course, what does he do? You know, he, he hears the, the tea kettle going off in the kitchen and, you know, sees that we've got the fireplace going there. So he goes out there and, you know, just calmly takes the, the tea kettle off of there, turns the fire off, turns the, the gas back on again and takes off, heads for the hills. So once again, Otis covering his tracks. Otis has now killed Bubba and framed it by giving Bubba a pitchfork. Then he kills Bubba's mother I mean, he didn't intend to kill her, but by breaking into her house and assaulting her, she had a heart attack. He covers that, her death, by blowing her house up with a gas explosion. Otis is really crossing the line. And, you know, once he kills Bubba's mom, you know, all bets are off now. Now the deaths are going to come real fast and furious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You don't mess with Bubba's mama. All right. So here we go. Number two death of the conspirators, Mr. Philby, the grain silo technician. Let's let's walk through this one. So, uh, and, and again, this is, uh, I don't recall if this is the same night or not, but you know, you have this, this beautiful, creepy moonlit scene with the, with the grain silos and, um, Philby's out there and, and, you know, he hears what, what sounds like what you would imagine a scarecrow to sound like if it was walking kind of like these rustling, shuffling steps, but, but like with heft to them, like it's, like it's a real, uh, like a person with, I don't know how to, how to explain this he hears this and he's, he feels like he's being pursued, which we know by this point he is. And, uh, you know, he's freaking out and kind of, kind of running to, to get some shelter from this and, um, goes into his grain silo and closes the little door behind him and, you know, kind of locks himself in there. And he, he still is hearing the footprints or the, the footsteps outside shuffling closer and closer and then they stop so i think he thinks he's safe for about a moment there but lo and behold his his grain belt turns on and the grain starts pouring in the top and he knows what's going to happen to him because of course the door is now locked he can't get out so this is this is another kind of horrific death where philby suffocates to death in his own grain silo and there, there's some great camera work in here, too, where you you kind of see his point of view, the grain coming down, and just it gets darker and darker and darker until it's finally black. And then we go we go to Bubba's point of view, and we just see Philby's arm kind of sticking out of the top of this pile of grain, and it's, it's horrific. Like, what a way to go. Yeah. He gets locked in his own grain silo by some un- unknown figure and then suffocated and buried under tons of corn, basically. Yeah, it's... This is a rough scene to watch, too. Although, again, as I keep harping on the screenplay, earlier in the movie, we saw Harless working on the wood chipper. Sure enough, he dies in his own wood chipper. Earlier in the movie, we saw Mr. Philby working in his grain silo. Sure enough, he dies in his own grain silo. There's a pattern here. They will all die of what they were working on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's, it's so fitting. You know, these, these guys have it coming, clearly. And the way they get it is just, it's perfect. And again, there's no evidence that anybody kills them. It looks like an accident, even though you know someone is killing them as revenge for Bubba. 
Exactly. And, you know, as, as soon as, as we see Philby's arms stop flopping around, the, the machinery turns off, the grain stops, and all we hear is the crickets. So it's like nothing ever happened. So, again, there's only like 15 minutes left in the movie. We're already at the end of the movie, pretty much. Um, we have two conspirators left. We have Skeeter, the guy who owned the dogs, the gas station guy, and Otis, the mailman. And now they find out that Philby died. And like, oh, my God, it's still happening. The mom wasn't doing it. The little girl, I don't know if she was doing it. And now they think maybe Bubba isn't dead. And Skeeter, the, the gas station guy, wants to confess He's like, I'm going to go to the cops right now. I'm going to confess. Maybe we'll just go to jail and then we won't die because he doesn't want to die. But Otis says, no, I will prove to you first that Bubba is doing this. And this is where we have the cemetery scene. Oh, yeah, the cemetery scene. And um, just as an aside here, I always kind of had a soft spot for Skeeter. I feel like he got into this just because of, uh, I don't want to say peer pressure, but peer pressure. Um, he, he seems like he's not like he wasn't into this from the very beginning. So I, I kind of have a little bit of empathy for him. Not a lot, but you know, and I mean, he's, he's crying like a little boy during this whole, this whole sequence here. Um, he just, I, I kind of felt for him, but you know, he's, he's, he was one of them. He pulled the trigger too. So he gets what's coming to him. Yeah. But he's clearly the stupidest of the four. Really. He just owned dogs. That's the only reason he got pulled into it. Cause they needed his dogs. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and his his little nice red dotted hat that we love. <laughs> oh, we have, a, we have a fun scene coming up with his hat. Yes, we do. That's why I mentioned it. Okay, let's talk, yeah, go to, let's talk about the cemetery. So these two head over to the cemetery, and of course they, uh, they dig up Bubba's grave. So, so Hazel Reed can prove to him that, that Bubba is either alive or dead, one way or the other. They're going to they're gonna find this out. So Skeeter's down there in the grave and has the crowbar and, you know, you can tell he's just, he's not wanting to do this. He doesn't want to know one way or another. He just wants to get this over with. So pries the coffin open and we, you know, we wait for the reveal. We never actually see it, but the, the reaction is all we need to know that, um, in, in fact, Bubba's body is in there. So that was only one thing. That it's it's Bubba's spirit that's been doing this. <laughs> or Mary Lee. Remember, Otis thinks it's Mary Lee. That little nine-year-old girl is killing everybody. That's right. I think it was that was that this scene when he comes to that revelation. I, either he says it to trick Skeeter or I don't know, but that's where he says it. Yeah. This. Oh, my God. It's Mary Lee. Bubba's not killing anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, they so he climbs back out of the grave then and there. And I think that's where, just like you said, uh, Hazel Rigg mentioned this to me that it's the little girl that's doing this. And uh, he says he, he kind of plies him a little bit and says, OK, OK, if that's what you really want to do, we'll go to the police and we'll confess and we'll we'll do this and that. But we, we can't leave him like this because that would look bad. So, you know, he gets him to go back over to the grave and he's like, well, well do you want me to do it instead? And, and Skeeter's like, no, no, I'll do it. So he jumps back down in there and and closes it and kind of. uh puts the puts the coffin lid back on the way it's supposed to be and you know you just you see hazel rig there and he's grabbing the shovel and bringing it overhead you know what's going to happen next so he he whacks skater in the head and the uh the hat that we mentioned before he brings the shovel up and the hat is stuck to the shovel which is just so effective 
I read that was an accident. That was not planned to happen. The shovel really did just stick to the hat. And that that's so funny that even knowing that, but <laughs> it was that that too. Just that seeing that hat stuck to the shovel, you're like, oh wow, he's he's a goner. Yeah, Otis kills Skeeter, who's the only witness that could implicate him because he doesn't want Skeeter running to the cops, brains him with a shovel. And again, it's a TV movie. You don't see it, but it's pretty horrific. And with the implication, you hear it. And really, all that's left now is Otis, the ringleader. Skeeter has been buried in the grave. No one will ever find the body. Otis is going to get away with it. And we are about to have the final showdown in the end of the movie. Yep. And this is, oh, wow, what a showdown it is. It's a, it's it's a it's a perfect payoff, and we'll we will see that soon. So um, Otis, I don't remember how he how he comes to be in this field. He's just driving home from the cemetery. He was driving home from the cemetery, and does he see Mary Lee? Is that what it is? Yeah, where it's the pitch dark, and we're dead of night. They've been out grave robbing, and now Otis is driving home in the pitch dark in his little mail van, and as he's driving home and drinking from his little flask, he sees Mary Lee in the middle of the road. She kind of startles him, and he's like, Mary Lee, you, I know, you're the one behind all this. You're killing people. She runs off into a cornfield or a pumpkin patch off to the side, and he drives after her to try to, I assume, try to run her over. He's going to try to kill her. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's typical Hazel Rig right there. <laughs> the guy's a jerk. Yeah, he's he's a real piece of work. What a character. But yeah, so he he's driving after her and I guess at some point I guess he just he can't drive any further, gets out and starts chasing her on foot and kind of loses her in the corn maze there. But we see some lights come on behind him and you hear this farm equipment start up. And this this giant tractor, or I'm not even sure what kind of farm equipment this is, starts chasing him through this cornfield, and we see that it has uh, this this mechanism on it that's just grinding up everything in its path. Yeah, so Hazel Rig is basically confronts the girl, Mary Lee, in the field, says, I know you're behind this, and she's like, no, it's Bubba. It was, he's getting back at you, and, and as he's talking to the girl... It's a, either a thresher or a bulldozer that starts up behind him, and it starts coming after him, and he turns around, and he's like, what the hell? Why did this machine just start on its own? And it's it's got a little, like you said, grinder behind it that's smashing up pumpkins and pulverizing them, and based on the, the pattern in this movie, we think that's going to happen to him in a second. His head is going to be pulverized by this little blade, but that is not what happens. Which and But even in itself, that would have been wonderful, too, but no, his death is much better. <laughs> and it's it's just it's such a fitting end. So this this uh, this equipment is chasing him through this field, and you know you keep going back and forth. You see the headlights, and you see him, and, and then terror in his eyes, and and he's running, and and then all of a sudden it's just like this. Um, how would you even describe that sound? Like he runs into something. You don't know what it is, but you, you see the almost the look of realization on his face. <laughs> he turns, and what does he see? He sees the scarecrow there, and he is he is now impaled on the very pitchfork that he put in the scarecrow's hands earlier in the film to protect his own ass. Oh, isn't that great? It's so perfect. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And the look on his face as he kind of unsticks himself and backs off, you know, grasping this this growing blood stain on his on his midsection. It's just it's perfect. 
At the start of the movie, he plants a pitchfork on the scarecrow to imply self-defense. At the end of the movie, as he's running away from this bulldozer, he runs smack face first into the scarecrow, the same scarecrow holding the same pitchfork, and he dies on the pitchfork he planted in its hands. Exactly. It's, it's poetic justice at its finest. And again... At no point in this movie have we seen the Scarecrow come after anybody. We haven't seen Bubba. It's meant to imply every one of these people died in a method that could look like an accident. So Bubba or whoever did it could get off scot-free. It's really ingenious the way it's all set up. It really is. because I mean, even all the way up until the very end, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a second here, it's, it's really kind of up in the air. You're like, you know, you could, it could have been something else. We don't, we don't know. We never see anything, just like you said. So, and then uh, the last, do we, do we want to discuss the last few minutes of the movie here? Oh, yeah. The surprise twist ending, sure. Yes, the surprise twist ending, which is was wonderful, too. And that, that was another thing that just stuck with me over the years, as I'm sure with anybody else who's ever watched this movie. Um, so we, we come ac- upon Mary Lee, who is who's still kind of hiding from, from Hazel Rigg. She isn't, I don't know that she knows what happened to him yet. Mm-hmm. And we hear those same shuffling footsteps as we heard earlier when uh, when Philby bought it. Coming towards her. Coming towards her now. And, you know, she's she's still kind of cringing there, but turns and sees that, oh, indeed, it's it's the scarecrow. <laughs> and she realizes that this is Bubba. And he kind of turns and looks at her. You know, the, the hood, the, the scarecrow's hood turns and looks at her. And... You see this gloved hand come over and hands her a white flower, just like the ones they were making wreaths out of at the beginning of the movie. And it's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, this this is a tough scene to really put in your head to capture how powerful it is that you see Mary Lee huddling and these ominous footsteps walk up to her and she just looks up. And her face melts. She smiles because she knows it's her friend Bubba. But it's not Bubba. We know Bubba is dead. We saw him in the grave. He's in the grave. They just dug him up. And so all you see, and it's from her perspective. I love the shot. It's straight up. You see the scarecrow walks up next to her and just turns and looks down at her with these dark eyes. You see nobody behind the mask. It's just the scarecrow moving by itself. And she smiles. And the scarecrow reaches down and hands her a flower. And this is her great line where the movie ends. She says, thank you, Bubba. She's like, you know what? Tomorrow, I think I'll teach you a new game. Did I ever show you how to play the chasing game? So perfect. <laughs> this, this is why this movie is lasting as long as it does, because it is just, it's great from frame one to frame, whatever the ending is. It's just, it's so well done on all levels. It's great. It's almost a perfect horror screenplay. You would not believe that this movie was just a TV movie. Again, it's not the most violent. It's not the scariest. It's not the most brutal. But, like, it's perfect. Someone, I've seen people argue this might be the most well-written and well-done horror movie ever made. And that's not just TV movie. I mean, period. Right. Right. It is. And it really is. I'm, I'm sure it's in the running. I don't, I don't know if I if I go so far as to say it's the absolute best, mm-hmm. but... It's definitely up there. It's perfect. There's no flaws whatsoever in the screenplay. Yeah, and and the beautiful part of it is just like we were discussing earlier, everything is like implied. You you don't see any of the violence or anything. It's just it's left to our imaginations and it's so much more horrible in our in our minds than it would be shown on screen, you know? Mhm. And that's what's it's great. 
And again, little kids were watching this because it was on TV. Parents, this this was one that snuck up on people. It's not you didn't have to go pay seven bucks and go to a movie theater knowing you're going to see something creepy. This was just a regular Saturday, you know, CBS Saturday night movie that just really affected a lot of people because they'd never seen anything like this before. Yep, exactly. And that's that's what gave it a life of its own. Yeah. And again, at the end of the movie, we don't know. Did Bubba kill people? Was it his spirit, his ghost? I mean, was the scarecrow actually walking around killing them? Like, that's what it implies, but we never saw it. Is the girl nuts? It's it's really, it just leaves it wide open. And it's just an ending that will always stick with you. That look of the scarecrow looking down at her again, which, as we said, the first use of a scarecrow is a horror movie villain. It had never happened before. Yep. And then and also, as we know, there have been many after that, but I don't think any as memorable as Bubba. Yes, although we should be fair, he's not really the villain. He is the hero. He is. He really is. <laughs> so there we go. We have covered Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Again, 100% success ratio when I recommend this to people. I have never had someone come to me that didn't say, wow, that was really good. Right. Guys, definitely check this movie out if you have not seen it yet. Highly recommended. Yeah, I had a, I had a couple friends say, should I, well, how should I, should I get, buy it on DVD? I want to watch it first. I'm like, just buy it. You will not regret it. You want to own this movie. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's definitely a worthy purchase. It's one that will get rewatches over the years for sure. Oh, yeah. And the rewatches are even better because you catch up how, you catch on to how well the screenplay is set up. Okay, with that being said, I wanted to talk about some other great made-for-TV horror movies. I know there's some other ones out there. We mentioned this one, which is the king of all of them. And then there's Don't Go to Sleep from 1982. There's some other good ones too, correct? Yes. So uh, if you remember at the beginning, I mentioned uh, my, my gateway film was um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. It was 1973 or 74. And I was... Clearly way too young to have seen it at that age, but it's uh, it made a lifelong horror fan out of me. It was just terrifying. And still, I even uh, I was I was talking with a friend about this one time (laughs) I had uh, I rented it when I was in my 20s and it was the first time I had seen it since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, My poor girlfriend at the time, I I apparently was having a nightmare about these those uh, little creatures from that woke up screaming in the middle of the night and scared the living shit out of her. <laughs> God bless her. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that, that nowadays I can watch it without the nightmares. So so, so have the lambs stopped screaming, Clarice? The lambs have stopped screaming, yes. But the movie still, even the, the opening frame of that movie, when it comes on, when I watch it, it, it still gives me goosebumps because I know what's coming. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's such an effective movie. Now, let's see. We also have Trilogy of Terror. That's the one in the mid-70s with Karen Black, right? Oh, yeah. Trilogy of Terror is another good one. And that, that's another one where, you know, people mostly remember it because of Karen Black's segment at the end there. I think it's the third the third segment with the Zuni warrior. Mm-hmm. And, oh, boy, that last frame of, of Karen Black. That, that one will stick with you. <laughs> let's see. There's some other good ones. My wife and I went through a marathon like about a year ago when we just there's a lot of these are on YouTube for people. If you go seek out famous made for TV horror movies, they're almost all available. There's the one with the three sisters. I'm trying to remember the name of that one. Mm, That one's not ringing a bell for me. Okay, there's one about a little boy who dies and then comes back. 
I wish I'd done a little better research. But again, just anybody Google these uh, made-for-TV horror movies from the 70s. There, there was almost a great one every year. Yeah, there were. There were a lot. And I mean, that was because that's what networks did back then. That was that was a big thing was having the movies of the week and the, the Saturday night movies and things like that. People look forward to it. And they um, they had high ratings generally, from what I remember. Now, there's one you just wrote about on Twitter. You posted about the other day. Where are all the people? It's like a sci fi movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was uh, I actually found out about that through uh, through my friend Amanda Reyes, who you guys might know. Um, she is like the the ultimate authority on made for TV stuff. Um, has a website called Made for TV Mayhem. And uh, yeah, I just I saw her post that, and I thought, well, I've never seen that before. I'll check it out. And it was it's another really effective movie. It's just that the premise of that one is that uh, this family is is kind of on. I don't know if they're like collecting samples or what, but they were kind of in this cave and basically the end of the world happened and they came out and like there was nobody except for, uh, I think one of their, the people that was along with them, this is, this whole had something to do with, with sunspots or, you know, sun flares, something like that, which caused this horrendous radiation to come down to earth and basically just disintegrated people. So, and these are some of the only people that are left alive on, on earth. And it just ha- it has this great creepy atmosphere of of solitude, and it's, it's it's a great watch. I would recommend it. That's great. That's one. That's definitely one I want to check out. No, I was just doing some research on the two that I was just talking about from the early '70s. The one with the three sisters. It's called Home for the Holidays. Mm, that's not the Home for the Holidays that I think about, but I will uh, I'll look that one up and check it out. Okay, it's like this wealthy guy has three daughters, and he asks one of them to he asks them to kill his stepmother, their stepmother, and like it all goes horribly. And I believe Jessica Walter is in that from Arrested Development. Oh, okay. And the other one I was thinking of with the son was called When Michael Calls, about a kid who dies and he keeps calling on the phone to his parents or something. Now that one sounds familiar. I think I might have seen that at some point, but it's been a while. Yeah, Michael Douglas is in that one. Oh, okay. But yeah, just as a plethora, quote El Guapo, of uh, wonderful TV horror movies from the 70s. And again, this is back in a time when there was only three channels on TV, really. So people would see these and they'd remember them and talk about them and word of mouth would spread for years and years. And they might not have always got a VHS release or a DVD or Blu-ray, but they are still available and they're still cool little time capsules of a neat time in horror. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, And like you said, you mentioned earlier, a lot of this stuff is on YouTube now. So uh, yeah, definitely seek these movies out because they are they're worth your time. They were there was a lot of really well made stuff back then, mm-hmm. including I think I forgot to mention Duel by Steven Spielberg, which was a TV movie. Oh boy, yeah, Duel is great. Bennett Weaver and and the uh, the truck that's that's basically that's the cast, and it's it's such an effective movie, so well done. You can see why why Spielberg went on to such greatness just from this movie. Yeah, I mean, these were as good as theatrical movies, and they just happened to be on TV. So that's, again, the great untapped potential on a show like Staff Picks is these TV movies that I can pull out of nowhere and introduce. But to me, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is the king of all horror TV movies, and I think everyone needs to rush out and see it this Halloween. Find it how any, any way you can. Listen to this man. He knows what he's talking about. Just do it, guys. You will not regret watching this movie. All right. Well, uh, Dave, I think you just successfully pulled off your first podcast, so congratulations. 
Woohoo! Pat myself on the back. I'm very excited to have you back for another one in the future now. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we we're gonna go uh, go in the opposite direction and, and do Xanadu one of these days. <laughs> Dave and I are both closet Xanadu fans, which you wouldn't think of for me. That's not really my type of movie, but I could not love Xanadu any more than I do. It's awesome. I mean, how can you not love a neon glowing roller skate wearing Olivia Newton John dancing to ELO? Now, come on. Does it get much better? All right. So Dave will return like James Bond here. Dave will return for Xanadu next year. Right on. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow or horror movies or anything in general before we sign off? Um, I actually I just thought of one more good TV movie for people to seek out. Actually, two. There were two from that same kind of time period. One is called The Car, which you may not have seen. And then another is called Killdozer. Both are classics of TV horror. So I think Killdozer is actually... Uh, Kino Lorber is coming out with a Blu-ray of that later this year, so you can see what kind of love that's getting, too. I only know Killdozer because they made fun of it on Mystery Science Theater all the time. They loved referencing Killdozer. Oh, it's, and you'll have to see it because you'll see why. Now, pretty much the last scene in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow should have been called Killdozer. Pretty much, yeah. Same thing. It's that, that heavy equipment, man. you got to watch out for it. So basically the rule from this movie is if you are a farmer, if you work around farm implements, do not gun down the local mentally challenged man. And, and make, sure you, make sure you unplug or take the gas out of all your equipment, just in case. Words to live by, my friend. And again, thank you for joining me. My name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more horror movies for Horror Month that deserve more love, although I'll have a hard time finding a movie as obscure and beloved as this one. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Oh, <laughs> you